We are so blessed today to be able to turn in our Bibles, and I know that most of you all, most all of you have a Bible, the greatest book in all the world, greatest book that has ever been passed on from generation to generation, and we're going to be turning in that Bible to the New Testament, to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. Thessalonians was, I believe is, accounted to be the oldest, the oldest of Paul's epistles. So it was, it's called the Elementary Fundamental Foundational Epistle. We're going to start out our lesson today on the fourth installment of the topic we've been dealing with, which is, as it was in the days of Noah. Have you ever heard that term before? As it was in the days of Noah, I think we're there, folks. If we aren't, we're, we're already so well into it that we can't quite discern what's happening. But I think that we all know that. So let's go with 1 Thessalonians. And folks, listen. Everybody, front, center, left, right, up, down. Let God's Word speak to you today. Open up your heart and your mind. Just let God, through His Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, let Him speak to you today. I pray that you will. So let's join our voices together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse number 1. But of the times... And the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, Art in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep. Hello. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken, are drunken in the night, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for in a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. What beautiful words. And then we're going to turn now to the Gospel of St. Luke. Chapter number 17, if you'll do that so quickly, if you'll do that, thank you. We're in Luke 17 now, the Gospel of Luke 17. And remember now that Paul's warning us in 1 Thessalonians that sudden destruction will come upon them. That is the language of catastrophism. 
That is, catastrophic events shall suddenly come. Not with a whimper, when God moves upon the wickedness of this earth, it will be cataclysmic. It will be catastrophic. It will be sudden. It will be quickly. It will be, it, it will be so quickly that people will be, it's almost like they'll be frozen, not, they'll be frozen in place. They will not know what to do, and it'll be too late. As it was in the days of Noah. And folks, listen, if, if you think that this, if this subject matter is somehow, uh, if it's becoming redundant to you, you need to really think about why you believe that or think that. Because there could be that you're not wide awake as you ought to be. So let's look at Luke 17. And we'll turn to verse 26. Now these are red-lettered words, so these are the words of Jesus. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Now here's the thought we need to think about, church. Do you know that the second coming of Jesus Christ is tied to the idea of the flood of Noah's generation. For those who believe that the Genesis flood is minimal, of minimal importance, Jesus tied it to his second coming. He did that in Matthew chapter number 24 as well. So there's something there that is really significant that the catastrophic event of Noah's generation was a precursor. It prefigured the events that would happen here on this planet coming down the home stretch of time when Jesus would return. So let's turn back to Luke 17 and look at verse 27. And they did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Sudden, catastrophic, sudden, cataclysmic end to the history of the earth at that time. It came suddenly without any Notice except the warning that God in the days of Noah had given to Noah 120 years before the event took place. Let's go on in Luke 17 and read verse 25. Rather, 20, let's read 28. Likewise also, likewise also, so Jesus is going to bring up another event. What kind of an event? A catastrophic event. Let's, let's read about this in verse 28. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day, the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Why would you think that Jesus used these two 
significant, most catastrophic events to, to describe the world and the way it would be at his appearing. Now, we sitting here today would find it difficult to believe that we might be living in the very days that the Bible is speaking of with regard to Noah. It may seem surreal to us, un, un, unreal, that we could be living in that time. But I want to warn this congregation that the Bible says in the words of Jesus, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the, of the Son of Man. Now, if you look at Genesis 6, the pre-flood events that were occurring on this earth, before the flood came, the earth was filled with violence. The earth was filled with wickedness of every description. Every imagination of the thoughts of, of the world, of the, of the people, was wickedness continuously. They thought evil. They spoke evil. They acted wickedly. I want you to think and reflect upon the wickedness of our generation. Now, there's a, there's a thousand different ways that that wickedness could be emphasized. But let me just pull one little thread of the ball of yarn of wickedness that's now being weaved together by the generation that now lives on this planet. Now, I'm going to mention something that I consider to be so abhorrent, so blasphemous, so unbelievably wicked, that I can't even wrap my mind around it. And that has to do with what this generation of American educators, American, the NEA, National Teachers Association, the American Psychological Association, and a, a whole plethora of other organizations are signing on to the idea that we've got to teach our children gender, that we've got to teach our children that they may not really be male or female. So we're going to go so far that we're going to go down into the elementary years of life. We're going to talk to the five-year-olds, the six-year-olds, the seven and eight-year-olds, and we're going to get them as early as possible, and we're going to say that, did you boys and girls know that you may be suffering from gender dysphoria? Well, they're going to wrinkle their little eyes and they don't, uh, foreheads, and they don't even know what you're talking about. But we've got idiots in America today that are going to push their wickedness off on the children of this generation. And it's absurd. It's abhorrent. It, it, it's vile. What else can I say? Now, to emphasize and drive this nail all the way into the wall, we'll call it the nail of wickedness. The nail of wickedness. They're taking a sledgehammer and they're telling little boys, 
If you feel like you might like to be a girl, a woman, then you can start down a pathway and you will be able to have hormonal vaccines that will change your gender. Estrogen will turn you from male into female. And to help facilitate this so that you are on the path to femininity before you ever reach puberty, they want our children before they can get to, to the puberty stage, then we're going, to, uh, we're going to use chemical castration. So they're castrating little boys who even think they want to be girls. Church, this is wickedness. This is more than wickedness. This is gross wickedness. I cannot conceive of the generation living in Noah's day of being more wicked than that. Now, maybe they were. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I know what's happening among the woke generational people today. It's enough to make one think America is turning into an asylum and the, gun, the, the guy running the asylum is as insane as the inmates. And the voices of those who are Bible-believing, blood-washed, spirit-filled, sin-hating, devil-chasing people, their voice is silenced. Their voice is silenced. The microphones have been taken away from them. Free speech is being censored, monitored. Big tech and the national news media is shutting down the voices of truth in this wicked, profane, vile, ungodly generation. Now, our God is not smiling down at this. God will have watched the cup of iniquity and he knows when that cup is full, and it's all over when it's over. When Noah closed the door of the ark, that was it. That day came, and everybody that was not inside the ark perished. Beloved, we are living in some very serious times. I'm amazed because God used the apostle Peter one of the great apostles of the church. Peter used the Genesis flood and Noah to warn us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, that the days of Noah are related to salvation because the ark is a prototype of salvation. The ark only had one door. Jesus said, I am the door. By, many, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life 
and that they might have it more abundantly. He went on to say in John's gospel, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. If they're truly in the ark, if they have come to faith in Christ, if they are sincere, true believers, and they have committed their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, they've been baptized, they obey, they believe, and they're living separated and sanctified from the wickedness of this generation. They're in the ark. But if they're not, they're outside the ark. Jesus is that ark. His people are part of that ark. They are the ark. Let's read on here in Luke 20, or Luke 17. Notice the same day that Lot went out of Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels were literally dragging him out because he didn't want to leave his Babylonian wife behind. And she ended up becoming a pillar of salt. The same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone. Folks, that's atomic energy. When God unleashes the power from heaven that he is capable of unleashing, it will be every bit as cataclysmic, cataclysmic and destructive as the flood of Noah or the fire and brimstone that was rained upon Sodom. You know the ancient city of Sodom is named after, or we name today, we, we call a certain venereal disease gonorrhea. It's a derivative of Gomorrah, and we know what is practiced in the, that ancient sinkhole of sin. It's called sodomy. And America now not only embraces it, they celebrate it. And we wave pride flags all over the, 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 the world today in celebration of, what, of, of the moral rot that is in this country. Shameful. It's shameful that a secretary of state named Blinken would fly the pride flag over our embassies in every nation of the world signaling that America is a nation that celebrates sodomy. Folks, I, I, I hope we're not so callous, so insensitive that that doesn't just make you filled with righteous indignation. Well, some of those nations have refused to let that flag fly. And what symbol did they take to exalt their prideful sodomy? They took the rainbow. What relationship does the rainbow have to the, to the flood of Noah? It's blasphemy. It's throwing the flood of Noah and God's righteous 
vindication against sin, and it's taking God's symbol, the, the, the very sign of the covenant that he made with Noah was the rainbow. That he would never again destroy the earth by water. We don't need to worry about water ever flooding the earth. But I'll tell you what we need to consider. That God's going to, he baptized the earth with water. And he's going to baptize it with fire. F-I-R-E. And it will burn hot. It will melt the elements. It will reduce this earth to a cinder. You remember three men? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament, they went into a fire so hot that it consumed the men that threw them in. Literally consumed them in the fire. And you remember a wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, who went back the next day to see if they're still alive. He, he walks there and, there and there's Shadrach, Meshach, and again, Abednego walking. They're walking in the fire. And he sees a fourth person a fourth person that ident is identified as the Son of God. Now that is a marvelous indication that they, that they sustain divine intervention by a pre-existent Jesus. Pre-existent Jesus. God will not forsake His people. Whatever the need may be, God will be there. But we better be on our toes and ready and prepared to receive his blessing. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't read verse 30. Look at verse 30, Luke 17. Even thus shall it be. In the day when the Son of Man is revealed. If you don't remember anything else today, you please take away from here the idea that the second coming of Jesus Christ is associated with the two greatest cataclysmic events outlined in the Bible. The flood of the Genesis flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God didn't leave anything he didn't leave anything in Sodom except Lot. And he managed to get two daughters out. He had two married daughters that refused to leave the city. He had a wife that kept looking back. And finally God said, okay, I've had it with this gal. She turned into salt. Look at the end of Lot's days on this earth. Look at what happened to his two daughters. That is a pre-indicator of what's going to happen to those who have one foot in the world. While they're knocking at the door of the ark, but have yet to go in. Just can't make up their mind what they want to do. Now, folks, when we left off last week, we were in Genesis chapter 7, verse 20. If you if you're have enough courage, if you have enough courage, go back to Genesis 
chapter number 7, and we'll begin right where we left off, verse 20. Verse 20, Genesis 20, and when we look at this whole subject today, let, let, me, let me mention this, church. I think this is pertinent, uh, really significant. In some form, our, ju our just presence here today is sort of a, a, a kind of a model to guide us into thinking about Noah and his family going inside the ark. Because when we come into this sanctuary, this house of God, this house where we're sitting right here, is a type of the ark. When we come in here, we're finding a refuge from the world. If we leave our troubles outside this door, we may find a remedy for our troubles as well. If we are not well, we may find healing just by being here. How do you know what God is using this service to do for you right here, right now? There's no one that knows what God may be doing and maybe not even those he's working with will know it. But why could this be likened unto Noah and the ark? I'm talking about this sanctuary where you're sitting right here today. Well, number one, we just entered a building where we all share a biblical worldview that's pretty much alike. That's not true if you walk down the streets of Joplin. Everybody you meet is not going to have and be sharing a worldview like you do. The moral of that story about the ark is really Noah's one message was repent, confess your sins, and get inside the ark. It's going to rain. Now who's going to believe him because it had never rained? And you know, as well as I do, that Noah was believed to be a crazy man. Just like God-fearing, Bible-believing, blood-washed Christians are looked upon as being crazy people by the woke generation. They think we are deplorable retards. That we can't, we don't know how to be progressive thinkers. Yes, we do. And we don't want any part of your progressive, woke, wickedness. So we all share a biblical worldview. Yeah. We may have some various and sundry differences, but they're generally pretty much close. We share a common, a common heritage, a common genetic background. If we did a genetic exploration of everyone in this congregation, 
I don't know anyone that's here that doesn't have a root back into European history. White Caucasian European history. That is vital because everybody that went into the ark that counted for righteousness were Caucasian and I'm not ashamed to announce it. They were all pedigreed people from the race of Adam. Every one of them excepting those that were not counted in the Adamic family. And that would require further discussion. So all of us here today share a common belief that God has revealed His Word in the Bible. You know you live in a nation today where millions reject the idea that God gave a revelation to His children on this earth. The idea that you're raising your children with a belief that there is a divinely inspired, providentially preserved word of God from heaven and that that word is absolute truth is not a common belief in the country you now live in. The mere fact that you can walk into this building and know that everyone is signed on to a belief in divine inspiration, inerrancy of the Word of God. That is a major reason why this can be called an ark. Because truth will be found where the ark is. Because Jesus Christ will be the primary person in that ark that leads it, the head of the church, Savior of the body. Now we also share a common meaning and purpose for what connects us to God by faith in Christ, we share a common meaning and purpose for life. We know that God gave us life and that our primary duty is to glorify God in this life. And we know that the real reality of anything begins with God and His Word. That is where reality begins. And anything that is not conforming to the Word of God is not part of His reality. It is part of the kingdom of darkness. We all share a common idea that we're called to take dominion of God's earth. God didn't put us on the earth to play twiddle-dee, twiddle-dum, or to sit under a, a tree and play video games. God called us to take dominion, bear rule, take charge. It may be a postage stamp yard, but it ought to be the best-looking one in the block. may not be the largest house, but it can be the cleanest and the yard can be the most well-manicured yard in the block. That's called dominion. Letting God know that His earth is meaningful. And we don't want to do anything to that earth that's going to be destructive to the food that will be grown upon it. We also share, beloved, a common belief that there's only two genders, male and female. 
It's simple. That's the way God ordained it. That's the way it is. And nothing's going to change it. All the operations, surgical procedures, hormonal shots, and all the wannabe idiots will never change what God has decreed and has always been. You need to, I don't know if any of you have ever listened to the testimonies of some of the people that went down the transgender road and then they, they just live in, in total sorrow. I listened to a couple of, of testimonials of young girls that lost their breasts. They lost their, their ability to bear a child because they made them sterile. They're on their way to manhood, remember. And little boys are being taught that they can be a mom. Would you like to be a mother? That is abuse to the male children of this generation. And God help those. Yeah, they need, God needs to send a message to the parents who would subject their children to that kind of teaching. We also share a common, a real significant common ground by remembering that we are all baptized into one body and that makes us all joined in Christ. We need to also remember that we're joined in the Spirit. We also know that we are joined together as a body. We are an organic body here today, joined by blood, washed in water, baptism, blessed in spirit. We have been quickened in our spirit that gives us communion with God. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the Word of God is also what washes us from the soil of this world, the evil. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Everyone who has been baptized into Christ has been put has been joined in, into Christ. When you're baptized, you're not uh, baptized to a church label. You're not baptized into a church label. You're baptized into the body of Jesus. He's the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. Well, we come into this building today and we all share a common belief in marriage. Did you know marriage is becoming obsolete? Six out of every ten young people today live together outside of marriage. What's marriage? Who needs marriage? Well, God's children need marriage because God has never changed his mind about the definition of marriage. One man, one woman, not Evelyn and Eve, one man, one woman, not Adam and Steve. One man, one woman of the same flesh, same genetic background. 
That's God's plan. He wrote it in the Bible. And God doesn't change his mind. I am the Lord Jehovah, I change not. Malachi 3, 6. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. So we believe in gender distinction. We believe in marriage. We believe in the family. The family, the family is the most basic unit of civilization. And without the organized nuclear family of a man and a woman and children, this, this civilization cannot be perpetuated in the absence of children. And God told his people to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth. That was a command of God. Be fruitful and multiply. I'm glad I didn't write the Bible. God did. Do you realize, church, what a nonconformist it takes to be to be a noble, God-fearing Christian in America today? I mean, you can be a professing Christian and you can sit by a homosexual in a church building and find it fully acceptable. You can be a professing Christian today and find race mixing right in the pew where you're sitting and everybody, everybody condones and signs on to it. Well, I'm telling you, that is not the way the Bible reads. That is a condemnation upon those who believe in such wickedness. Somebody asked me one day if I'm prejudiced. Well, of course I'm prejudiced. Everyone is. I'm, I'm prejudiced. I'm in favor of everything God says. And I question everything man thinks. So I want to delineate between what God says in Scripture and what I hear people say in America today. And that includes what's going on in the churches. I visited one of these mega churches, not too awfully far from here, and I, I barely could stomach what I, what I was listening to. And finally, when I looked around and I saw race mixing openly being condoned, and I know that I must have been sitting by a homosexual because my my, I just felt like I was, had jumped into a pool of chlorine and a little bit of water. So I got up out of that service and I walked out. I could not, I could not fathom that being called a body of Christian believing people. I couldn't believe it. Becoming commonplace in America today. Now, Noah was a nonconformist, and we're going to have to be nonconformist or we're not going to survive. You cannot be a conformist uh, to the world standards today and be, and be right with God. It's not going to happen. You know, the Bible says in, in Hebrews 11, by faith, Noah being, by faith, Noah was warned of things not seen as yet. He moved with fear, with reverence prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness. 
which is by faith. Hebrews 11:7 is a marvelous tribute to the nonconformist thinking of Mr. Noah. You know, um, folks, Jordan Peterson this week gave a message. It's just a little short message. And he, he um, titled it, To the Christian Church of the World. Roman Catholic, Protestants, Evangelicals, Protestants, whoever wants to listen to this prod, podcast, Jordan, Peter said, Jordan Peterson said, this is for you. And in the story that Jordan Peterson gave, just a little short clip, he said, when you go to church, the church should remind you. And particularly it needs to remind young men. Young men. With emphasis on the young. And even first and foremost, churches should be speaking to the men. To the men. To the young men. To the boys. Hear ye, hear you. Now, I don't believe everything that Jordan Peterson believes, but I, I, I'm watching the transformation, the metamorphosis of a clinical psychologist move from atheism to profound belief in a sovereign God. And it's a marvelous story if you haven't followed the trajectory of his life. He's got a ways to go, but he's on the way. He went on to say, let the young men, single young men, remember that they need to find a woman. That's a new twist for Americans. They need to walk with that woman into a garden to nurture her. They need to nurture that woman and the children she bears in the garden into which she walks. The garden being the life that that young man is going to lead her into. He needs to build a ladder that will reach to heaven. He needs to build a spiritual house. A spiritual foundation for the woman when he finds her. And for the children she will bear. Now I'm, I'm uh, uh, elongating uh, Peterson's words because he, he's very succinct and I'm not. So I'm, I'm tempted. I'm just, you have to listen to the, to the uh, podcast. But he, he said, you got to build this ladder to heaven. And then you have to become a man. And becoming a man, you face the catastrophic Events of life. And you face those catastrophic events. We're calling them the trials and the tribulations that a family goes through in this world. And you face them stalwartly. Now I'm quoting from Peterson. You face those events in truth, devoted to love and without fear. Because God is with you. 
He went on to say that we call young men, single men, young married men, older men. We call men to give of your time and, and your energy and your goodwill. And in Noah's day it would be, help me build the ark. A flood is coming. And the earth is going to be destroyed and you need to get your family prepared and ready to enter into the ark. We want to make things better for you. Come into the ark. In his, this case, it's come into a congregation. Find yourself a congregation. Give of your talents. Give of your time. Give of your energy. Life is more than just what you want to do. It's more than taking your, uh, your boat out on the lake. Life is getting involved in the kingdom of God. Life is about taking the church that God has put you in and making it a better church. Finding its weaknesses and helping to make them better. Helping to find where the church needs your talents, your help. And when you become involved, your children become involved. And they will follow your footsteps. But if you find it attendance by convenience only, your children will seldom find their way into the church when they grow up. If you want your children to be in church, brother, you be there. And don't think that you can find excuses for sitting on your thumb at home or finding 101 or 1,001 things that you think have a priority over God and His church. No, get into the ark. A judgment day is coming, folks. And we need to be about our Father's business. Now, with this rather lengthy introduction, we are ready to quickly... As quickly as we can, take the oars and boat over to Genesis chapter 7, verse 20. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. Woo! That's getting deep. The waters... Now, folks, listen. How many of you people have ever been in a big flood? How many of you ever watched a flood uh, come up? Now, here's the deal. In 1986, we had 26 inches of water here. And I, I can't be 100% accurate, but I think it came in less than, it came in less than 72 hours, between 48 and 72 hours. And it was not just rain, it became a absolute downpour. And we had water into this sanctuary. It, it just couldn't drain off quickly enough. When the rain stopped, it didn't mean the flood was over. Because the water is now running and collecting 
into the rivers and into the streams, and it caused the, the water to start rising. And the water began to rise. The rain's over. But we had water continue to rise until M highways closed. Both east and west exits out of here closed up. The gravel road to the south had 18 to 20 feet of water over it. Nobody could leave this island in the 86 flood. And all life in that bottom except the fish and the life that can survive in water, all the land creatures had crept up out of the bottoms and we were flooded with deers Snapping turtles. It, this, this area became a regular zoo. So when the Genesis flood came, and the Bible says that the fountains of the deep opened, it, it, what does that mean to you? Well, if you really dig into that language, it means that the subterranean regions of the earth began to belch out torrents of water. Not just water, but hot, boiling water in some cases. Water so hot that it was melting everything around it. The windows of heaven were open. What do you think that means? When God opened the windows of heaven, if you go back to Genesis chapter number 1, it will tell you in black and white that what you need to remember, originally there was only one, one continent. All land was connected together. Now all you have to do is look at a world map and see how all the continents will fit together before they were once broken apart. The Genesis flood completely started moving the, the, tecto the tectonic plates that upon which all of the earth is resting. The fountains of, of, of the heavens were opened. The windows of heaven, that's the expression used in Genesis. God opened the windows of heaven. And when he did, an ocean of water came down. An ocean of water came down. Inside that ark was Noah, his family, and the representatives of every individual distinct, separate race that God had created. It says all flesh that breathed, representatives of that species were taken aboard the ark. If God had named every Every part of that creation that went inside the ark, we'd have more than four chapters devoted to the flood. So in verse 20, the Bible is going to tell us in chapter 7, verse 20, 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. Whoa! What does that mean? If you've been to the top of a summit of, of a mountain, you know standing at the summit of a mountain, that when the water covers the mountaintops, there's a lot of water.
A lot of people deny the Genesis flood because they just can't believe the incredible amount of water that would be required to flood the entire planet Earth. Now, I have this penciled in my Bible. I heard a geologist talk one day, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I want to tell you what he said. He said, if all the rainfall that falls on the earth over a period of three days were to cover the earth, there would be no land showing. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. But I know what water can do. Have, have you ever visited the Thompson Dam Reservoir in Estes Park, Colorado? That literally created a river when that dam broke by water. Water is the most, it, it may be one of the most powerful forces in nature. The power of water. And when water's under pressure, water can do unbelievable things. So the tops of the mountains were covered. Now, we may have not had the large mountains we have today because in the process of the flood itself, the earth is buckling. The earth is being transformed during the flood and mountains are coming up that were once part of a continent on this earth. And that's, you know, the, the, the flood can occupy a lot of detail because I could not carry in both arms all the men who are now writing and have been writing on the geology, the paleontology, the fossil history, left behind by the flood. It's, it's incredible, folks. And here's, here's something I find remarkable. I don't know what you'll think about this, but let me share this with you. If you open the pages of the Bible, and you study the story of creation, you study the creation of Adam, man, and you study the Garden of Eden, the fall of Adam in chapter 3, the fall of Adam, the arrival of sin into the world, and you follow the story of Cain and Abel, it will take you to the end of chapter 4. That's the exact number of chapters that God takes for the entire Genesis flood. I don't know what you think, but I think it's rather amazing that God took just as much time to warn us about the flood of Noah as he did the creation of the world. As he did, together with the story of Adam and Eve and their creation of the Garden of Eden and the fall of man, and the whole story of, of Cain and Abel, which takes one entire chapter Genesis chapter 4, and God packed all of those events into four chapters, but he slowed down when he came to the Genesis flood, and he said, whoa, those who come to be believers will need to know what the Genesis flood really entailed. So I will take the liberty, I'm just paraphrasing what God may have thought, God might have thought, well, 
There'll be some doubting Thomases. And I want to give them some verses that will really wrinkle their brow and cause them to utterly reject. But believers will know that God can do anything. Is anything impossible with God? And the answer is no. Now, I find it no less than amazing, my brothers and sisters, that the Apostle Peter, centuries after the Genesis flood, weighed in on the Genesis flood, big time. The Apostle Peter. And he said in 2 Peter 3, 5 and 6, For this, speaking of people that react to the flood, they willingly are ignorant, their ignorance is willful, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished, end of quote. Whew. Verse 21, Genesis 7. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and every, every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man. Underline the word all. Do you know how many times the word all appears in this chapter? I was going to count them, but I, I wanted to count them during a moment here in, in our service when I had a quick moment, but I didn't get them all counted. I ran out of time to count them all. But I know there's at least a dozen times that the word all is there. Now, with regard to the Genesis flood, the word really means all. I can't say that all the people in Vernon County are here this morning. But I can say that all the people that God elected before the foundation of the world are sitting here in this sanctuary today. Because I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. So I believe that everyone that's here today, we're supposed to be here for whatever reason God had in mind. Verse all whose nostril was the breath of life, verse 22. That's pretty inclusive, wouldn't you say? All in whose nostrils was the breath of life. That was representatives of the black race, the oriental race, and all the other distinguishing different races upon the earth. But God didn't write the Bible to those people. He loves those people. He created those people. He has a purpose and a plan for those people. But his purpose and plan for those people is different than the plan he has for the Adam kind people. That's the bottom line, church. And it has nothing to do with God's love or his not love. God loved all things that he created and found them very good. Genesis 1.31 but when he called Noah to build the ark, he's going to save, he's going to save the people that he called to be his dominion-oriented people to bring help and mercy to the rest 
of the created world. Who turned the light on? Who turned the lights on in Suralinka? Who turned the lights on in dark, the dark corners of Africa? Who lighted up Africa? It was the Adam kind people who turn on the lights. Blessing all people. And all those non-white people recognize that, that have hearts that have not been corrupted by modern foolishness. That have not been reprogrammed and re-educated. They know their blessings come from the white world. They're being completely separated from those ideas today. And every living thing, and every, I'm in verse 23. We are going to finish this chapter. And every living substance was destroyed. Whoops, every living subject was, substance was destroyed, which is upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things, all the creeps, the fowl of the heaven, they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. Now, who was the first one to get into the ark? Who led the way into the ark? Did Noah put his children in first? Did he say, I want you to go in and see if you're brave enough to get into this, into this boat. But it hadn't rained yet. Get into the, to the boat. No, Noah's the first one to go into the ark. The man ought to be the first one to come into the doors of the ark. I'm talking about the church. Amen. I'm talking about men's leadership. I'm talking about men rising up and being leaders. And not waiting for their wives to lead them. Men were called to be leaders. Noah was in the ark before anybody else. He said, it looks good in here, come. So men have to lead the way. We, we dare not put that load on the women. They've got, they've got enough cares. They're maintaining all the little ones. You're the leader. You're the man. You've you got to take charge. And Noah only remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed. You know that word? If you dissect that word prevailed, it means... That it, the water just kept rising and rising and rising, prevailing. It didn't stay at one level until all the earth had been covered and all the wicked had been destroyed. And God had simply brought an end to all life outside the ark. So here comes the end of this lesson. And I confess, church, that I have a sincere problem. And my problem is, my problem is that time is too elusive for me to structure a well-structured sermon because I have a tendency to go where the Spirit leads, which can be dangerous, but it can also be profitable. 
because you're not getting a can sermon. I didn't bring a can opener up or can opener up here and, and open up a can and dump it. I let God teach me where to go with this lesson, and quite honestly, if I'd have had my way, I'd have been to the end of chapter eight. But I didn't get there. So I I don't think I should apologize for it. I should just be hard on myself and tell myself, look, be careful about being led of the Spirit, making sure that the Spirit is of God. So shall we be standing?